Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy and Wemina, and it is such a pleasure to be here. I am super excited about today's episode because we have a very, very, very special guest who's going to talk to us about how to create writing structures to help you succeed as a clinician researcher. And so without further ado, I'm going to have her introduce herself. Gia, please introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. And yes, I am Gia. I am a physician researcher and a nephrologist in New York. And I also started a company called Publish MD, where I help clinicians publish research papers and try to build their authority and also achieve their academic goals. So I'm here to help you achieve that. I love it, Gia. So you're a nephrologist, you're a clinician researcher, and you help other people in in getting their research, moving their research forward as well. So awesome. I want to start from your journey because the clinician part of you and the part of you that's the nephrologist makes sense, right? You, you, it's it's the trick we all did to get to the specialty that we got to. But at, at what point did you make that transition from clinician as a nephrologist into a researcher? How did that happen for you? So yeah, I, I I was trained in Malaysia and in Ireland, and where a lot of emphasis was on clinical work. And when I joined residency, then in the program we had a lot of quality improvement project is assigned to us. Where each year we you know the the second year will lead the first and third year we'll do a group project. And because of that, that's that exposure. It made me it made me feel interested about asking questions asking questions to solve clinical problem, not just one-on-one basis, but to for a bigger impact. But these projects, even though they were meaningful, uh, they were never published because it was usually not good enough. And I decided that I needed more training. And, and when I did my fellowship, I took a research fellowship and did my master's in clinical epidemiology. And, and then I thought that was enough. Throughout that three years, I did my master's, my fellowship. When I graduated with my master's, all the research done, I had zero publication. And, you know, when you look up trying to do a research position, they, they don't hire a researcher who can't publish their science. And so it was a lot of clinical uh, job offer, but I got lucky actually that somebody, uh, my current institution invested in me and they said, you know what, I'm going to give you three years. 50% protected time just to jumpstart and prove yourself. And because there was my second chance, I told myself, I'm not, I'm not going to do the same thing as before. 
I'm going to do everything different to make sure I can prove myself that they invested the right person. And so within two years, that was a time where there was a mindset shift. There was a major change in myself where a lot of things happened. Writing was actually, I could not finish a project. I can't publish a paper. So that was the first investment. Once I did that, then it snowballed. And then I started writing grants and got NIH funding. So that's where the snowball happened. And now I'm really into research. That's super awesome. I hear so many things in, in the things you're saying. So number one, you weren't satisfied with your role as a clinician. You saw that there were gaps that needed to be filled and you decided that you want to be you wanted to be one of those people to fill those gaps. And I think that you echo the sentiments of many clinicians who are like, this is not enough. We're not helping patients. There's more opportunity here. And so you took a step further and you did the training, but you didn't have enough training. And then when you got to the place where you're looking for jobs, you were finding out that your not having published actually was working against you. And what's interesting is that, you know, you did have this opportunity to do a 50% protected time position, but you really took the initiative and you made an, a substantial investment in yourself to make this research and the research writing piece work out. And I want to ask, what did that investment look like, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah. So investment, sometimes we only think about money, but it was time, money, energy, all three things together. And it means that I am not working 40 hours, 40 hour weeks. I'm working 80 hour weeks. The, the extra 40 outside of my clinical work is about improving my writing. So uh, I took courses, any courses I could land my hand off, land my, you know, get, get access to. I will always join coaching calls. Um, every time they ask for, oh, bring feedback, I will always bring. Additionally, I will also do practice. I will do deliberate practice on my own writing. People will say, oh, how do you practice writing? I actually have like techniques. I, I found a book and I was practicing. I was doing copy work just to download the style of writing. And these additional things I was doing at the side because I felt that writing was a core research skill because you, know, you can have the data. But if you can't transform the data into a compelling story, all your research, three years worth of work is useless. So I felt that if I just need to put the energy into this piece, this big piece, you know, that was the first thing I could think of. There were other pieces, but I did not want to be distracted. Let me get paper out. So that was what I started with. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. This idea of time, money, and energy. It's not just money. We always think, oh, it's money. And sometimes we shy away from that, but it is the time. It is the energy. And, and what you're saying is you work extra hard. You didn't, you didn't say, well, my, my work week is a 40-hour work week. I'm done. But you said, this is the extra training that I need. And you made an investment to do it. And, and it sounds like your hard work paid off. And you have all these publications now behind you, and you're actually even teaching people how to publish. And so I want to I just talk about that. How is it that you went from finishing your, these programs where you hadn't published anything to now where you are actually showing people how to succeed in publishing? How did that happen? So um, it is through these programs, I realized that technique is one thing, like how to write it. I realized the biggest problem is the mindset and how you structure the time. So that was actually the biggest piece. Uh, coming from a clinician black background, it meant that you have a lot of free time. When you have free time, if you don't structure the time, 
you 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 are going to end up checking epic inbox. You're going to check an email. You spend too much time speaking on the on the phone with a patient for an hour, but but with no real progress. And so there was a mindset shift. I would say is embracing myself as a professional writer. A professional researcher is a professional writer. I'm being paid to publish my research work. So I need to take writing seriously. So I start writing during work hours. It has to be daily. I treat that as my cl uh, clinic. Like if, if, if it's a clinic, I will always show up for my patient. I'm never late. I never cancel on them. So I treat my writing sessions as a clinic appointment. So once I did that, I realized, oh, it's actually not just the writing. I need to move the needle every time. And, and as I talk to many people, as I coach uh, people, that is actually the major thing. They always say they have no time. But when you break down what they do, oh, they haven't even put in the time to write. They're hoping to find a sliver of time. They hope, they hope to find some inspiration. But when you're a professional, you don't wait for inspiration. You do the work. So, so I think that big mindset shift was key in, in my success. And when I talk to people, I realize that's the biggest barrier as well. That's really great. I love what you're talking about. It's not just the writing, because we're writers. We're all writing, right? We're writing clinic notes all the time, but it's the process yes. of writing, the process of creating space for your writing and creating space to move move your work forward. And, and without that space, the work doesn't move forward. And, and so I love the way you talk about creating structures around your writing and, and, and making sure that you're not waiting for inspiration, but you're actually creating space to be working so that inspiration can hit you while you're in progress. I wonder if you can speak to what does that writing structure look like for you? And how does someone who's never had a writing structure move from no writing structure into writing structure? There are two things. First is you must, there must be a commitment. First mindset is always must be there. You must have a commitment. You must not give excuses. We, you know, when, before I went into 50%, I was operating. I was still working. I tried to squeeze my clinical work 50%. I tried to squeeze it into 25. So I am pretending I'm working as a 75% researcher. I put so much research work in, in that same amount of time. And, and the commitment to putting research as the first thing that is important. Commitment. Second, you need to show up. Show up for the sessions that you have scheduled for. Number third thing is consistency. So I, I'm, I'm a believer in if, you, if, you, if it's something important enough, you should do it every day. Because it just builds the momentum. It just builds the habit. And when you do it every day, it just makes it easier. You don't have to think. You don't have to say, oh, should I write today? Should I not write today? It's like, okay, it's 10 a.m. It's my writing time. I, I don't have to make a decision. It's my time to do it. So at, at the beginning, put artificial structures if you need, get accountability buddies if you need. But I would say commitment first, show up in consistency. These are the three things uh, we need in place as a recipe. Then you can start building the habit. Thank you, Gia. Now, one of the things I hear is, is really, and you talked about this with the mindset shift. We're clinicians, at least primarily that was our, is our training. And so the clinical things tend to pull us a lot. 
And so in order for us to move to the space of doing research fully, we have to take on a different identity as writers, as professional writers. And it has to be part of our daytime job. It's not the kind of thing we're doing in the background where, where there's nobody, you know, when nobody's looking. It's really part of what we're doing actively. And so I, I wonder what's the biggest resistance that you encounter in your clients when you're trying to get them to set these structures into place and also have this mindset shift? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. I, I've given this advice so many times and the, the number one objection, they will always say, but my patients need me. I, I need to fit the patient in. You know, I feel bad. My patient... You know, I, I came in to become a doctor. I can't say no to my patient. And, and then they, then I, I will say this. Yeah, exactly. Your patients come first. When you sit down and write your paper and publish your science, you are helping not just one patient. You're helping a thousand patients, your future patients. That's the impact. So don't think that you are saying no to one patient. You're actually saying no to a thousand patients when you are saying no to your writing. So I think. Not everybody buys that, but I think you need to buy that as a researcher. You're going to research for impact, not to just one. We, we do love the one-on-one. -on -one. That's why we still keep on the clinical work. But we, we want to do more. Researchers want to do more impact and move science forward. And, and having this mindset shift, that when I sit down, I am helping my thousand patients who are in the future. That is the biggest mindset shift. I love it. I love it. And also, I think one of the things you point to is that we're not here just to, you know, dabble a little bit in research. Like, oh, I'll just do a project. I'll just do a project there. Yeah. Really leading change. Because the reason we've gone into research is because we see gaps. If clinical, if clinical care was perfect, then we wouldn't even need to be doing research. But we're, we're doing research because we see gaps. And so in a sense, it's an obligation, having found answers to some of those gaps, to let other people know so that people can change clinical practice. So in a sense, it's an obligation, not just to the patients before us, but really, yes, as you say, future patients. And, and it's, 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 a different, it's a different way of thinking, but definitely an important mindset shift to have. I, I wonder for you, as you are now kind of going from, you know, coaching clients and, and really helping move, move people move their research forward, who are the clients who've had the biggest successes and why? So the biggest successes are those who show up, those who show up for calls, uh, those who go through the program, like um, the digital course. Um, some people will buy, but they never respond to emails anymore. And then you see them, they have never logged in. Um, you know, you, you, you buy it. But some people believe that just because they buy something, they, they get results. You actually need to go in and do the work. And research is not easy. And you actually need to put in the work. Some reality check there. People are hoping to, to join the program and get easy fix. But the, the, the jump between a clinician to researcher, the skill set is so different that there are so many layers and so many pieces you need to build. And it's not like you just need one piece. You need the threshold of, I need these six skills together. Then I can get publish a paper. And those who don't show up usually or because, oh, I only did one piece and I don't see a result. Uh, the people who get success are, they have fill in the writing piece. They have also learned the research, they know how to ask a research question. They learn the process of doing everything. They complete the project. That's also important. So the, these are the few components that make somebody successful. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that brings to mind is when you think about 
the people that we are competing against, so to speak, when we submit for funding, they're PhDs who've been doing research for years right. and years. And, and they've not just been doing research on the side, they've been fully doing research as part of their whole experience. And so as you talk about, it's a whole shift. There's a whole different skill set that's needed, and it really does take time and investment. And I, I wonder if some of the challenges people may experience has to do with, well, I haven't created the time and the structures to, to move this forward, but if I just pay for a program, it's going to fix everything. And, and as you yeah. say, it's like, you know, making the investment is one thing, but that's just an investment of, of money. Time is, is necessary as well. And yes. That's the theory as well. So it's a whole package. What yeah, about, yes, it's a whole package. Yeah. What about people who say, well, I have a great mentor. I don't need this. What, what would you say to them? I love this question because let me share a quick story. So I have, when, when I was writing my grant, my research grant, I have excellent mentors. I have one who is in the right space in a different institution. I have one who is so, I have like a whole team of amazing mentors to guide me. And yet I paid for a $5,000 bootcamp that lasted only for eight weeks to write my research grant. And my reasoning, my reasoning was they are good, but I'm not good enough. So for them to, to make my, to help me, they need to tip. I, I want to go from good to great or great to extraordinary. I, I want my, my, my grant application to be excellent. But if I'm only like, okay, average, my mentor can only pull me up to good. And that's not good. So I felt that I needed to bring myself to great so that they can bring my application from great to extraordinary because I don't want to waste time. I want to submit the best grant I have in the very first try so that I can get it. You know, that's my goal. I, I hear people say, oh, you know, key grants, you get it in the second or third try. I don't want to waste time. I want to go, I want to go for the big kill. I want to get it first time. And because of that mindset, I do things differently. I, I, I need to push everything. I need to optimize every part as I could. Mentor is one of them. My own skill is one of them. And so because of that too, Perry, I did get my grant the first time around. And so I felt that the 5,000 was worth the, uh, the money because you know, 5,000 to get a million dollars, that's a huge ROI if you think about it that way. No, that's super awesome, Gia. And and it's so funny. It's like, wait a minute, you paid $5,000? What? What about people who are like, well, if my institution is not going to pay it, why should I pay it? What do you have to say about that? Mm, great question. So when you when you pay for programs yourself, you you keep the skill. Who, who, wait, wait, the, who, who, it doesn't matter who pays for it, but at the end, who comes up with the skill? I take it back. When I pay for it myself, it means I believe in myself. When I believe myself, I, it most important thing we have to be sold on ourselves. If our program does yeah, are not sold on us and not willing to pay for us, we have to be sold on ourselves, on our goals, on our ambition that we are willing to pay for it ourselves. Right? If, if we can do it, then we can achieve it. But if we are not even sold, then oh, if nobody's going to pay, that means you're not going to invest in yourself. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever I need to get there. So yeah, so so to to me, you you and at the end you hold the skill. It doesn't matter who paid for it, at the end you learn through this and you keep the skill and you can bring your skill wherever other institution, wherever you go. 
Thank you for, for speaking to that, Gia. I think one of the things that's so important and I think can be challenging for us because as clinicians, we've gone through this training where people tell us this is what you're supposed to do and this is what you end up with. This is what you're supposed to do. This is what you end up with. When we start our faculty careers, we are leading our own careers. But sometimes that transition doesn't happen for people and they're still very much like, well, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to be? But really what happens when you decide, wait a minute, I'm doing this for me. This is what I want to succeed in for myself. Then you don't wait for someone to say, oh, I might be able to give you a couple of thousand dollars or I don't really think that program is for you. You're making decisions because you're the one who's going to benefit. And I love the way you put that. It's like, this is for me. And at the end, I get to keep the skills. And these skills matter to me because I'm going to do this again and again. And I'm going to coach other people to do it. And so, of course, make the investment. And so I just, I really appreciate that you shared that because even for me, when I first started, there was this sense of like, well, okay, if they don't feel like I need it, maybe I don't need it, but it's Mm. not for them. It's for me. I wonder if there's anything else you want to add to that. No, no, absolutely. It's not for them. It's for me. They they may want to invest in you, but you have to be the, the person who really needs to invest it is yourself. You need to be invested, invested in yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Gia, you know, it's funny. I feel like with all of your, all you've been saying, it's almost like, well, that's so easy for Gia. She's clearly sailed through life. I want you to speak to the challenges you've experienced along the way, first for yourself in making that transition, and also as someone who's now coaching other people in making that transition. Yeah, I think my biggest one, the the biggest obstacle was when I finished my fellowship and couldn't find a proper job, a research job, right? And I I was hoping my my institution would keep me as faculty, but, but... but I could sense that they were not willing to keep me because I'm, I'm not, I don't have anything to show for. So, so that was one. Even with when I first joined the faculty, I was worried. What if I can't, you know, three years, what if I can't get any publication? What if I can't get grants? So, so these were also obstacles I had. Um, I think finally for the coaching clients, the other obstacles I see are the misaligned incentives that we, we do see in the system, not just personal, where you were told that you need to publish papers, but you're not given the time to have or the space to, um, to do scholarly activity. So, and then they, you know, anything, they, they keep putting patience, more service time on the surface. They say, oh, yeah, we, we promote people to become associate professor, but, but there's no time. Having said that, we have to accept what we have in that situation. You either get out of it or you take charge. You know, you, if you can't change it, you, if you can't change your surrounding, you change yourself. So see what you can do to get out of the situation. And one final thing I would say as well is clinicians sometimes forget what the true metric is to be a researcher. The real metric is publication in grant funding. If you don't get that, it doesn't matter how good your teaching is. It doesn't matter how good your evaluations are. If your institution's metric for academia or promotion is publication, you need to know the rules of the game. And sometimes people don't want to look at that. They ignore it. And then five years later, they realize that, oh, I did not reach my metric. And so what, what you have nothing to show for, 
So that that is kind of also another barrier, not knowing the rules of the game. You know, when, when you're joining any game, you need to know how do you score, how do you, what the rules are. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I have to, I, I, you know, it reminds me of something I hear often. People say, well, we want you to be a team player. And, you know, usually I have to say, I feel like that's often said of women who are sometimes not given enough resources. And they're like, just be a team player, just accept what you're given. And when I love it because it's like, what is the game we're playing? And how do we know when we win? It's so important to ask that question. What is the game? Because sometimes being a team player means, well, you let the other people who we selected out to be successful win, and then you support them. And, and if it's fine, if that's what you want to do. But if really what you're doing is leading your own research and leading your research program, then you want to make sure that you're playing a game that makes sense for you. And then at the end, you win and you know when you win. And so I love where you started, where you were like, when you were first looking for a job, it wasn't the job you wanted. At least you, you didn't find the job that really supported you as a, as a clinician researcher. And you you went looking for what that job would be. And, and, I, and, and I appreciate the advice you give where it's like, well, you have a choice. You may not, you can't control your institution and whether they choose to support you or not, but you can choose how you respond to it. Whether you're going to stay at the institution and find other ways to support yourself, or you're going to choose a different institution that actually provides you the support that you need. And so what I hear you saying is that we are we have agency. We are in charge of our careers. We are leading our careers. And just because other people say no to us, doesn't mean we should say no to ourselves. Absolutely. I want to riff on, on your thing about team player too, because that's such a great point. How our division works, when I do research, I'm being a team uh, I'm being a team player because how we how we view our our division is one person does oncology, one person uh, does stone, and we all have our own roles to bring the whole division out up. And so my role was actually to be a researcher so that we can bring up the prestige. We can bring up. So when when I say no to clinic patient, when I say I know I can't do so much service time because I need to get grants, I need to get. It, it builds up the prestige and builds up the publication of the uh, numbers of the division. I am being a team player. So we can't always think about team player being just do the things equally. But what are we doing as our role? What is our intended role as a true team player? I love it. I love it. I want to speak more to that because it's like if we think about, let's say, a game of basketball. And I don't even really play basketball. So it's not me. Yeah, but there are people whose job it is to defend and their job is a little bit different mm -hmm. from those whose job it is to score. So, so that yes. for the people who are defending to say, well, we're going to leave our defending and go do this work. They're not going to do it as, as well. And so for us too, it's that, well, if this is the work we've been brought on to do, if this is the work we want to do, we've really got to succeed well. And so when somebody mm -hmm. says, well, you didn't see as many patients as I did, you have to take a step back and say, what is it that I'm uniquely qualified to do? And am I doing that? Or am I doing something that somebody else actually could do for me? Somebody else could easily do and, and take my place. And I think that's really important because, you know, in your field, there are not many researchers that are moving the work that you're moving forward. And I bet at your institution, if you stopped your program of research, there are not many people who could step in and just take over. And so it's important for us to recognize the value we bring and to protect that value. Yes, yes, yes. And I love the basketball analogy. I never even thought of it. Like, yeah, the defend, you know, the, the person who shoots, the person who defends, they all have their own goals. 
Absolutely. You know, I feel like you've just, you've just shared so many wonderful nuggets of wisdom. And I wonder if there's a clinician right now who's sitting there saying, well, no one's supporting me. No one's providing resources for me. I really want to succeed as a clinician researcher or as a physician scientist. What do you, what advice would you have for them? My, my first advice would be think about the, the why, like why you want to go into research in the first place. Is it just you want a pre-publication here and there? Really, I think if you want to really do research, you have to think about impact. Who am I going to change? What is it? It doesn't matter how, in fact, you should be thinking big. Uh, the bigger you think, the easy it is for you to overcome the obstacles. Because if your goal is so small, every small obstacle will get in the way. But if your goal is so huge, it needs to, it will bulldoze obstacle, right? Oh, it, people got rejected. But my goal is so big, I, I, can, I can work through this. If, you're, if your goal is just, ah, I just want to maybe get one or two publications, all right, oh well, right? So, so you need to have this huge goal and it has to be so deep, you truly believe in yourself. Once you do that, then you can work through all the obstacles because research is not a two-year career. We're talking about 30-year career where you're trying to move the science, you're trying to help patients in the thousands. Thank you, Gia. I love the way you put it. It's about what impact do you want to have? I think as clinicians, we're very big on just helping patients be better, helping patients manage their disease or if possible, get a cure from their disease. And so when we go into research, we have a big picture of the kind of change we want to move forward. And in a sense, there's an obligation to that future goal. If you can get there, think about how many patients, how many lives you'll transform when we're here and beyond the grave, right? We're, our, our impact continues whether we're here or not. And it's if it's so big, and it is big for so many of us, then that's that's the goal we keep in front of us. And we don't say, oh, there's a little bit of an obstacle here. We say, no, if I accomplish this thing that I want to do, it's going to be so impactful. It's going to be so awesome. I'm going to look back on my career and I'm going to be so excited that I made the investment, that I made the sacrifice. And so absolutely, I love that you put it that way. It's like, think about your impact and it does matter. It matters that we are aligned with kind of maximizing our value in achieving the impact that we came to achieve. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate your coming on the show and, and talking to our audience. And, and I just feel like you've just shared so many great insights. And I want to really thank you for, for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. It's, it is so good talking to you because I feel like nobody's listening to me. Nobody understands. And, and you, you get it because you, you and I have transitioned from a clinician to research site and have seen you know, the struggles and the obstacles. But we, we did not forget that's the, the whole point of doing this is for impact. So, so I really feel like this is a message we all need to be talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Gia. And hey, for those of you who are listening, if you've heard this podcast episode and you're like, somebody else needs to hear this, I want to ask you, I want to invite you to share this episode with as many people as possible who need this inspiration that comes from Gia today. And if you're a mentor and you're like, well, one mentee or two may benefit from hearing this, please definitely share with them because there are so many clinicians who have a desire to make great impact and they don't know the first place to start 
or they settled into a clinical career that's not really fulfilling them because they're not doing the research piece. So please share this podcast episode with someone else today so that their lives can be transformed as well. All right. It's been such a pleasure talking to you all today. I want to thank you for listening and I look forward to talking with you again next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do health.